Well, hello and welcome once again to Citizens. Uh, my name is David. I do go by DC and I serve as part of the pastoral team. Uh, so glad to see you and to worship uh, in this space with you. I have the privilege of sharing God's word with us today. We took a short break uh, from our series through the book of Acts uh, last week to celebrate Easter. Uh, and so we'll pick, pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago. Uh, Acts is part two of Luke's gospel story. Uh, Jesus passes the baton to his disciples to continue uh, to carry out his ministry. Uh, but he wouldn't leave them without providing aid. He promised them the Holy Spirit. Uh, the very s same spirit that enabled Jesus to perform his miracles and do his ministry will now be with the disciples. The very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will now take residence in their lives. Uh, and as soon as the spirit rested on the disciples, we saw them act, speak, and do the very same things that Jesus did. And through the empowerment of the spirit and the bold preaching of the gospel, thousands came to know Jesus. And they repented of their sins and they were saved. And this is how the early church was birthed. And so we're very much in the honeymoon stage of the early church. We haven't seen much opposition or resistance, but that is soon going to change. So two weeks ago, we learned about Peter and John miraculously healing a lame beggar. This was crazy. Everyone knew this man um, because everyone, this man that had that reputation that he was born uh, not able to walk. And every day, someone would carry him to the temple at a gate called Beautiful for him to beg for money. Peter and uh, John went to this man and he, they healed him. Now this man is jumping up and down and praising God and the crowds gathered in amazement. And this is where we'll pick it back up. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts 3, and we'll read verses 11 through 23. I'll be reading from the NIV. Let's give our full attention to the reading of God's word. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that, that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. 
For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. This is God's word. Let me uh, say a quick prayer for us. Father, we invite you into this place. Holy Spirit, fill this space. Open up our ears and our hearts to receive your word. Spirit, help me how to communicate your beautiful truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one of my greatest joys in life is to see my kids grow up and develop. And it's really fascinating how they take on our personalities and interests. My middle two uh, girls played basketball for the first time this year, and watching them learn a new sport was so fun, but also very frustrating. Uh, you start to see how they think, process, and even deal with adversity. And at times, it's like looking in a mirror. And Jane and I were constantly bickering, right, claiming all the good traits and blaming each other for all the negative ones, right? Devin, our second-born daughter, has my persistence and focus. And Dylan, our third-born daughter, has Jane's aggression and competitiveness, right? And we start seeing ourselves in our kids. But we see this in any meaningful relationship. The more time we spend together, we start to uh, take on each other's personalities and uh, quirks. You see this in couples and in friendship. Uh, They start to resemble and mirror each other. Luke wants us to see this with Jesus and the disciples. The disciples began their ministry the same way Jesus did, with signs and wonders. We heard about this in Pentecost. And now again, we see this in the healing of this lame beggar. And just as Jesus drew masses of people to himself, we see with the disciples crowds gathering around them. It's like deja vu. The disciples are mirroring the very life of Jesus. This newly healed man is hanging on to Peter and John, and thousands of people have gathered at a place near the temple called Solomon's Colonnade. And this was on the eastern part of the temple located in the outer courts. And this place, this specific location, was all too familiar for Peter and John. You know, we have memories associated with specific places, whether good or bad. You know, whenever Jane and I go back to Cerritos, it brings back a lot of memories because we spent uh, the first few years of marriage there. Some places we drive by uh, brings us good memories, other places, painful ones. And we have emotions attached to specific places, whether they're good or bad. And Solomon's colonnade was one of those places for the disciples. See, in the Gospel of John chapter 10, Jesus at this exact location reveals his divinity to the people. He says, God and I, we're the same. We're one and the same. And what the people did is they stooped down They picked up a stone, ready to stone Jesus. Because what Jesus did was blasphemy. To claim that he was God was punishable by death. But they didn't succeed at that point. A few weeks, months later, they would. Now they are back at that exact same place, with a similar audience, with the very same message. The question I ask is, why would they go back? Why would they go back? You know, I always found it interesting 
that when Jesus gave his final instructions to his disciples, he tells them to go back to the very same place that he did. In my mind, I would argue with him. You know, it didn't go too well for you. What makes you think it will go well for us? Shouldn't we go somewhere else? Shouldn't we actually avoid the places of danger? Why would you tell us to go back to the temple? Why go back to the place of rejection, trauma, and pain? It's a very simple answer. It's because God's love knows no bounds, nor limits. He relentlessly pursues. He's willing to go to any place or space, travel infinite distances to meet with us. His love is extravagant and sometimes even reckless. And this is one of those key examples of that reckless love. You know, we live in a world that tells us to relentlessly work, earn, prove your worth. You have to win the love and approval of others. You're only significant if you have that degree or have that job or make that income or live in that type of home. And that is why we're so tired and exhausted because we are constantly chasing and chasing, grasping for something to hold on to, but only to find air. You know, there's this uh, new Netflix show that's all the buzz right now called Beef. Many of our citizens' community were involved in that project, which made it even more interesting and fun. Uh, just a warning, it's a little bit adult, so for our younger audience, please wait and get your parents' permission before you watch it. Uh, but it's one of those shows that makes you think deeply about life, and specifically about the Asian-American experience. Um, no spoilers, I promise. But Danny and Amy, the two main characters there, reflect and talk about their experience and how everything is so meaningless or futile. How they described it was empty but solid. Right? It's an oxymoron, but I love this, this description. It captures what we experience in this life. An emptiness that we feel inside in pursuing all these things, but it's heavy. It's a heavy type of emptiness. And it's substantial. It plagues us. And what the gospel does, it invites us to pause from this life, to stop, to look behind you, to see that there is someone actually pursuing you with a love that isn't earned but freely given, approval that is unwavering, an acceptance that is everlasting, and a joy that weathers all storms. You know, Jesus is unafraid, undeterred to meet you where you are. We see this over and over again in Jesus' life. He enters into enemy territory, Samaria, and he has this very scandalous meeting with a woman at a well who was a serial adulterer. He goes into the home of the chief tax collector, the most hated man in the city, to eat with him. And Peter knows this truth all too well. For all Peter knew, he failed his friend. He denied him not once but three times. And he, for all he knew, his journey was done. And shame took him back to his day job, the sea. And where does Jesus meet him? He could have shown up anywhere. 
to encounter Peter again. But where does Jesus show up? He goes to Peter while he was at sea. And he restores a relationship there. And what all these meetings have in common is Jesus meeting messed up people in their places of brokenness to renew and transform them. The question I want us to consider today is where and in what space does Jesus want to meet you specifically? Where does he want to encounter you? Is it in the place of regret, a broken relationship, bitterness and resentment? Does he want to meet you in your place of addiction, depression? Is it the place of grief and mourning? So crazy. Jesus shows up once again in the exact place of his rejection to reveal himself again. But not in person, but through Peter and John. And the results couldn't be any different. We didn't read this, but thousands of people came to salvation after Peter's sermon. They repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. And I think at this point, the disciples are starting to figure it out. And understand what Jesus meant, that the spirit in them is better than having him beside them. Thousands come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But how does this happen? How does the same people who rejected Jesus now turn to him in trust? This is a pretty radical change of heart. And the simple answer is the gospel message. The Spirit moving through the message to convict and change lives. But I want to unpack Peter's sermon. There are certain movements in his sermon that will help us understand how to experience transformation in our lives. How to experience transformation. I think that's fair to assume that we're all here sitting in these seats because we want to change. There's something about our lives that we want to see improvement in. We want to see transformation in our relationships, in our marriages, in our parenting, just in general. We want to see change in our lives. So how does that happen? First, a deep knowing of Jesus. That's what we need. A deep knowing of Jesus. See, there's a fundamental difference between knowing about Jesus versus knowing of Jesus. Right? With all the access to information, it doesn't require much for someone to know something about someone. And to be honest, all you you need to do is Google Jesus, and you can figure out a lot about who this man was. And you can gain quite a bit of knowledge. It's not hard to know about Jesus. Knowing of him is altogether different. It's a dynamic knowing where there's real interaction and exchange that leaves an impression on you, where you're not left the same. We have to understand, Peter was preaching to church people. They were at the temple. Their parents probably taught them the law, told them stories about the Exodus, taught them about Passover. They weren't lacking knowledge about about God. They lacked personal knowledge of God, a personal relationship with God. And this was the main tension in the, in, from the early beginnings of the biblical story. What God wanted the most from his people was trust. But what do we see them do? 
transactions. The temple, instead of becoming a place of intimacy and experiencing the presence of God, it became a place of checks and balances. And slowly, religion became a means to a self-interested end. So I can get blessed. So I can get something. So I can avoid being cursed. And the experience of God was reduced to religious routines and just simply going through the motion. I think this sounds familiar for many of us. And so King David, the greatest king of Israel, understood this about God. And this is what he wrote. Psalm 51, 16-17. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and, broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Do we understand do we have a proper understanding of God? Do we have the right expectations of God? Do we understand his expectation of us? See, the Israelites had a misguided expectation of the Messiah to come. They had in mind a great military and political mind who would overthrow the Roman occupation. Jesus was a leading candidate. But what puzzled the people was Jesus' social decisions and preferences. Instead of rubbing shoulders with the elite, he spent most of his time, time with outcasts, right? eating with the lowest of the society. And instead of recruiting the highly educated and reputable, he gathered, gathered a random group of uneducated blue-collared workers. And even as they witnessed Jesus' miracle, all they saw was a king and a kingdom of their own making. And even at one point, they wanted to crown Jesus as king. But they missed, they missed it completely. Because Jesus' kingdom wasn't going to be a physical one. It was first and foremost a spiritual one. His kingdom wouldn't be established to force or power, but through sacrificing his life. So it wasn't that their vision was too grand. It wasn't grand enough. And so when Jesus was betrayed by his friend, taken as a criminal, and put on trial, at the moment that they knew Jesus wasn't the one of their own making, and with no hesitation, they asked a murderer to be released instead of him. And they handed him over to be crucified. They were responsible for killing God. And this is the point that Peter's trying to make. You killed God. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. He's connecting and bridging their history with Jesus. They should have known, but they missed it. He was the promised Savior. Verse 14 and 15. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murder be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. He wasn't just a good moral teacher. He wasn't just a miracle worker. He isn't someone you just emulate. He was and is God. He is the righteous one, the holy one, the author of life, 
what Peter is doing, he's wanting the people to know who Jesus really was and is. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? See, there is a right answer. But do we know him as he truly is or have we completely missed him because he doesn't fit into the vision of your kingdom? Real change, real transformation starts with true knowledge of Jesus and his kingdom. Secondly, in order for us to be transformed, we also need a deep knowing of the self. Now, I'm about to say something that might trigger some alarms, but please just hear me out. A deep knowing of Jesus alone will not lead to a transformed life. What we need as well is a deep knowing of ourselves. Notice how, how personal Peter's sermon is. You disowned him. You asked the release of the murderer. You killed the author of life. He's having them take an honest look at who they truly are and what they really did. See, unless we have a depth of knowledge of our true selves, the knowledge about Jesus will only produce Christian externalism, a lifestyle of doing Christian things without being transformed internally. You know, Pastor Jason says this all the time. And it really confused me at first. He says discipleship isn't about, isn't about becoming more Christian, but becoming more human. And for the longest time, I was like, what does that mean? And what did I get myself into coming to this church? But over time, I understood what he meant. See, there's a lot of accessorizing that goes on with our faith. Things that get gets us distracted from the ultimate goal. See, the ultimate goal is Jesus. For us to become like Jesus. Not to perform Christian activities or to perform religious rituals. It's actually for us to be like Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate human that God wanted all of us to become. It is to be more human. Not to be just more Christian. See, Christian externalism has, has us looking more religious on the outside. It's about creating community, getting more involved in activism, participating more in more programs. And these aren't necessarily bad things, but you can do all of these things externally without actually having internal transformation. And so we can ramp up all these activities but it will distract us, and these things can actually distract us from truly knowing and confronting our true self. It's easy to put on a face. It's easy to put on a show, especially on Sundays. You know, everyone here, especially I think in L.A., we want to know ourselves and to be known. Right? MBTI, Enneagram, these are all helpful tools for us to do that. And if you, if you spend a little bit of time here, you'll, that's one of the first questions you'll be asked. Hey, what's your number? Right, what's your Enneagram number? But we are so much more complex than these letters or numbers. They help, but it can't capture who we are, the complexities of our entire lives. 
See, after Peter calls out the Israelites of their guilt, he says something very interesting. Verse 17. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Messiah would suffer. If you can keep this passage up here, because it's, it's kind of crazy. This passage is a little bit crazy. So there's a lot here that we got to uh, break down. He's saying that you didn't know any better. You're ignorant. So were the leaders. And in the Old Testament, we have this distinction between uh, uh, different types of sins. One committed unknowingly and unintentionally, and sins that are committed willfully and knowingly. So we get this in Psalm 19, verse 13. This is what it says. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And this is quite puzzling here. This is quite puzzling. Because God knew exactly what would happen to his son. But he sent him anyways. Whether you're ignorant of it or whether you knew of it, God knows. And it's really difficult to wrap our minds around. The sovereign will of God and our responsibility. Because even though they were ignorant, God held them responsible. They aren't mutually exclusive. God is absolutely sovereign. He knows and will things, but we are also responsible for our actions. Ultimately, this is a divine mystery. We don't know how all the mechanics work, but we see that they are compatible. You know, as parents, we know better than our kids. We issue warnings after warning, especially to the younger ones, don't put that in your mouth. Don't stick your finger in the socket. That's hot, that's hot, that's hot. And sometimes the kids don't listen. And you watch them as they continue in their rebellion. And sometimes you just have to just let them do what they want. Even though with the foreknowledge that it's going to hurt them. Why? Because we want them to learn. Sometimes the hard way. Our sins aren't outside of God's sovereign will. And that's actually really good news. God warns us. At times he will discipline us. He'll warn us again. He'll discipline us again. But they won't ultimately disqualify you from his love. The breath and depth of God's love is so vast incomprehensible this doesn't make any sense this is this is so crazy it reaches the deepest levels of pain and complexity and even our sins this is God's love Peter's story and this specific crowd is evidence of that you know there are a number of challenges to believe wholeheartedly this truth about God's love our willful sinning, and even the hidden ones. Right? Our sins make it difficult for us to believe and receive this love. And we are composed of what I like to call fragmented selves. Fragmented selves. It's, it's, it's parts of our lives that have been fractured by sin and the sins of others. 
See, our willful sinning affects our understanding and hinders our receiving of this love. And unfortunately, the sins that have been committed against us does the same thing. And so what we do is this kind of weird spiritual maneuvering. We believe that God only loves and is, is present in certain parts of our lives and absent in others. Fragmented lives. You know, my college years, I fell hard, really hard into the world of gambling. It only took one casual and harmless hangout with some friends at an 18 and over casino, which is prominent in Seattle, and I absolutely got hooked. My mind and body craved to relive the thrill. And so actually, I couldn't go days without going to the casino. And I did whatever to feed my addiction. I stole from my family, lied to my friends, and as a result, racked up a debt that I couldn't pay back. Two years, I lived in this darkness. And when I got found out, I spiraled out of control even deeper. But added to my addiction was shame and depression. By God's grace, I was able to get away from Seattle, get healthier. But to be honest, I relapsed several times. It took me years. And I actually even relapsed in my first year of marriage. It took me several years before I can be fully freed from my addiction. But as I, as I, I grew my faith and as I was pursuing ministry, I realized that I couldn't freely share my story. Every time I would, I would downplay it and leave out important details. See, although I knew on paper that God had forgiven me, there was something still keeping me from sharing freely. Even though I knew in my mind that God loved me, there was still something missing. And that, that what was missing for me was I never asked my parents for forgiveness. I never asked them to forgive me for what I did to them. And actually, 10 years have passed. And there was a, a, an opportunity several years ago where our family was reunited. And at that moment, I felt the Spirit telling me, you should tell them you're sorry for what you did. Again, I knew. I knew that they've already forgiven me. They never stopped loving me. But I needed to ask them formally, please forgive me. And I needed to hear from them, David, we forgive you. You know, I share this because I willfully sinned against God and others. But I needed to allow God to enter into my shame and guilt. So that not only do I cognitively know that God's love, God's love has forgiven me, but for me to actually really experience it. You know, this part of my life that, that, that I thought was cursed turned into a blessing. It took some time for me to realize this, but God has brought countless people into my life who had similar addictions. And before, I wouldn't be able to understand, but now I have the joy of journeying alongside people that are suffering in this way. God wasn't only present in my darkest moments, but actually he turned it for good. But it required me to take a deeper look at myself and also to, for God to enter into my brokenness. Another example of a fragmented self 
you know, through marriage and parenting, I realized another part of me that was so broken, that was my anger. I was so irrational in how I expressed my anger. Jane and I would fight, and not only was my anger directed to her, I had to make everyone around me suffer. Especially those closest to me, and that was my kids. I would ignore them, and I would respond to them, and I would remain in darkness, even though I knew they wanted me. I rejected them. They had nothing to do with my fight with Jane. But something about my anger made me push everyone away. And I had to make everyone suffer. And this is an example of a hidden sin. Something I wasn't aware of about myself. And again, shame and guilt crept in. And I felt so weak and exposed. My first Sunday at Citizens, I participated in a book club with other fathers. And through this meeting, I realized I couldn't run away from this uh, reality about myself. And I need to confront it. So my dad was here this past December. <laughs> Again, I wanted to avoid it with everything, but uh, I, I asked him out, and we had a date. And I was actually able to ask him about some things about his life and actually address some of the anger uh, that he he, the way that he expressed his anger, because I knew that I learned this from somewhere. And so he shared his story with me. You know, he got married when he was 22. He became a, a father when he was 23. He brought up some painful memories of his past, and then I was able to bring up some painful memories I had with him. And I asked him about it, and I confronted him about it. And for the first time, he said the words, I'm sorry. There are visible things that we're well aware of. There are hidden things that we don't. They're so complex. There's so much complexity to our lives in the way that we sin, the way that we've been sinned against. I didn't know things about myself, and not because of that, I was hurting others. And through, as you live out your life, because of different people that God put places in your life, it might be your spouse, it might be kids, you'll start to discover these hidden things. And what you want to do is you want to run and hide. You want to cover it all up. But know that God sees you. He knows you. And he wants to be in those spaces with you. How he meets us is through relationships. And this is why we have community. And just to, make, just to make it very clear, my life isn't whole. I haven't resolved everything. My anger is something I'm still working on. But through his grace and through this community, I'm able to know what it means to be seen, what it means to be loved and accepted holistically, every part of me. And this leads us to the final element of transformation. Embracing both the reality of Jesus and the reality of the self in one space. Embracing both in the same space. Verse 19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. As he promised long ago through his holy prophets. 
See, when you see Jesus for who he truly is, and we see ourselves as we truly are, and then we see Christ, the righteous one, the holy one, the one created, who created us, hanging on that cross, our hearts will be overwhelmed with love. Because he hung there for you. Not for general sins, but for yours. See, the gospel invites us to stop running, stop hiding. There's no space Jesus is unwilling to enter for you. There's no mistake too great, no failure too big that places you beyond Jesus' reach. Jesus met with the very same people at the exact location of their rejection of him. And the invitation for us today is to repent, which means to change directions, course change. Turn away from living your life the way that you want to live and follow Jesus and live the way that he wants you to live. That's what repentance means. And there are three promises that Peter shares. Your sins will be wiped out, completely clean. You will be renewed. And that is a lifelong process of renewal. It's not a one-time thing. And one day, he will come back and restore all things. No more tears, no more sin, perfect glorified body. These are the promises we have. If you turn from your ways and choose Jesus' ways. You know, in 2019, I was able for the very first time to get a car for myself. That's under my name. All my life, I had hand-me-downs. And so finally, I had the means to uh, get a car. And so Jane and I, we went to a dealership and found a car. And we worked out a deal. It was a great deal. And the time that came to do all the paperwork. And one of the final steps was what? Your credit score. He asked for my social security, and I immediately, immediately I got anxious. Jane and I both looked at each other, oh, this is not going to be good. And finally, my past has caught up to me. I knew my credit score is not good because of my past addiction. And my fears were confirmed. He comes back, he's like, sorry, we can't give you the deal. You're going to have to pay way more beyond my means. And I was like, dang it, finally, my past has caught up. But then the dealer also says something like beautiful words. And he looks at Jane, he's like, can I get your social? <laughs> and at that moment, I was like, yes. Because I knew Jane was responsible. No debt. She has no past like mine. Her credit score comes back. I get the deal. She had to co-sign for me. You know, we're told that God has a room for you and me in his kingdom. But a score is required. Actually, you need a perfect score. When God takes a look at our lives, our score is not even close to perfect. Actually, it's negative. We don't deserve remotely a room in his kingdom. And in that moment of despair and hopelessness, what does Jesus do? He comes alongside you. He signs his name next to your name. I'll co-sign. Not with ink, but with his blood. What he says is, I'll take your score and I'll die for it. I'll, raise, I'll, 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 I'll be raised again after three days and I'll give you my perfect score to be on your record. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. This is the good news. You don't earn it. You just receive it. 
And that's why God says, come in. Because my son's name is written next to yours. This is the good news of the gospel. See, Peter's journey with Jesus was always up and down, even until the very end. What held Peter together was not his own strength, but the strength of Jesus' love for him. And I wonder if that is why he was so effective as a witness of the gospel. He was not only a messenger of grace, he himself experienced and was transformed by it. And this is what we want to do. This is who we want to be as citizens, to embody the grace. Not only to preach and know about grace, but to embody it and to journey in this love together. And it is a hard one. It is a lifelong, lifelong journey. But that's why he gave us one another. To understand what it means to experience grace and love in relationship. He was, Peter was well acquainted with failure, shame, and guilt but also forgiveness and renewal. Citizens, may we pursue this love together to not only know Jesus' grace, but live in it together. Transformation comes when we see Jesus for who he is, when we see ourselves for who we really are, and when we be in that space of love with both those realities. So may we pursue this love together for his glory and our good. Let's pray. just want to invite, and I want to ask that question again. Where does Jesus want to encounter you today? What are the places where you're like, Jesus, I, I, you don't want to come here. You don't want, to, you, want to, you don't want to know that about me or be in that space with me. Whatever that place is, if you're bold enough and if the Spirit leads you, can you just invite God into that space? Again, it can be a place of grief, a place of mourning, an addiction, depression, regret, a sin that no one knows about, you can invite Jesus to be in that space and allow him to love you. Allow him to just be over you and cover you with his grace. I just want to give you a moment to, to spend that time with Jesus and I'll close this in prayer. Father, we are amazed at your love for us, that you would come back to us again and again, pursue us again and again relentlessly, trying to remind us of the truth that you love us, that you accept us, not because of what we've done, but because of the faith you gifted us with. We thank you so much for Jesus, for his life, death, and resurrection, for taking a debt that we cannot pay and to give us a perfect score, the perfect record in your son Jesus. In those places of feeling exposed and vulnerable, God, may you meet us there. 
May you speak your love to us. And may we know it, not just in our mind, but can, we, can you help us to experience it in a supernatural and overwhelming way where we're not left the same, that we are changed forever. Thank you for your grace in my life. And I trust that same grace for our community that you will transform us from the inside out. Help us not to just go through the, uh, the motions of religiosity, but help us to experience and be transformed by you. So Spirit, we invite you in this place. Breathe new life into us, especially into, in those spaces that we don't want you to come into. Bring down those walls, Lord, and help us to bring them down. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for your love. May you receive all the glories. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.